Hi everyone, just before we start today's um, podcast, I just wanted to put a bit of a warning at the front of it because most of my episodes have been put on as clean, but this one I'm just going to put on as explicit just because there is two swear words as I'm quoting someone and also it can get a little bit dark in some areas, so I just wanted to put it on as a little bit of a warning just before we start today. Thank you. Welcome to this week's episode of Macabre for Mortals. I'm your host Claudia and this week we are rounding off the execution series with the psychology of why humans find executions so morbidly fascinating. I obviously had the preface to this episode um, just explaining why I have actually got this as explicit but I'm also going to say that this of course is very generalized information that I'm giving today as I literally cannot go into absolutely everything even though I'd love to and this is all backed by research but to be honest all the general I don't know information that I'm going to give you um is what usually happens. There will always be anomalies out there and there will always be that person who deviates from the norm. But anyway, without any further hesitation, let's dive into this deep and fascinating subject. start by citing a paper written by Rebecca Fox for psychology in 2013. She wanted to first see the psychology behind morbid reality by using interpretive phenomenological analysis of the fascination with blood gore, injury and death on the internet. Fox states that the psychological effects of viewing fictional, morbid and often violent material are long researched and often in a negative light. Yet despite the abundance and growing popularity of the factual morbid material, predominantly on the internet, what will this be having on people's psyche? Interpretive Phenomenological Analysis, IPA, was crucial in her study to gain the best insight into participants' experience with blood, gore, injury and death And ultimately, the research questions, why do people view this? This is also backed by a paper by Anderson in 2012, also in psychology. Few studies have actually explored the effects of watching someone become injured or even die. Her study has had a really small participant pool, we should say that way. She only used five males and three female adult participants from around the world. And her study looked into and addressed the motivations behind viewing factual morbid material on the internet and the effects that 
the reality of the material involving injury or death. Basically, she identified the participants' keen interests in the material along with the reporting and it showed both positive and negative psychological consequences. In comparison with previous literature based on both factional and fictional morbid material, this was largely based on a short-term exposure and the results are mixed and a lot more further research with the participants or from similar intimate domains would be necessary to obviously further explore the effects of viewing this morbid material. This first was done actually by Zuckerman and Little in 1986. However, her study was entirely original at the time. And the themes identified and the conclusions drawn should be taken with um, caution and a pinch of salt, really, as this is her study was acting as merely an introduction to the psychology behind the fascination of viewing this morbid material. So basically, what I could gather from what she did is that she did not just find the negative psychological effects like most studies had actually reported on beforehand. That's all that she could seem to find. And that's all I could seem to find is how it can negatively impact us. But what she was finding was some positive impacts as well. I will delve into this a little bit later, but this was just the introductory study. So this paper actually led me on to a book called Severed, A History of Heads Lost and Heads Found which is written by Francis Larkson, which actually goes into this phenomenon on why people like to watch executions. She has also given a brilliant TED talk, which you can find on YouTube, which I will link below in the show notes, where she lightly touches on her themes in the book, as well as going into a little bit of historical, um, into the history of the executions as well. It's well worth watch if you don't want to read the book. It's a really great, I'd say probably 15 minute TED talk, which really doesn't feel like 15 minutes. So I will, as I said, link them in the show notes. In the TED talk and in the book, she discusses the issue of people watching executions in more modern times, specifically the popularity of beheading videos online but she does give some history for perspective. For example, she gives the stats that a poll, poll taken in the UK, so just in the UK in 2014, estimated that 1.2 million people had watched the beheading of James Foley after it had been released. 1.2 million people. And that was just in the first few days and only in the UK. To some people, this may only seem like a small amount as it works out about only about 9%. But this is still a percentage that does grow after those first few days. And this percentage was just the percentage of the participants and people 
who watched the whole video. Lots of people did watch the video, but stopped before the beheading. She goes on to mention that social media has made these videos and watching executions more accessible than before in modern society. But the invention before the internet that did make this accessible was, of course, the camera. The camera has actually brought live streaming, which we view with our phones, with our computers, everything. It has made life be able to be seen wherever you are in the world. So this camera invention actually captured the execution of Eugene Wademan. This execution was actually meant to be taken out at one o'clock in the morning, but the executioner on this day was not very well experienced and didn't know how long it was going to take. So actually it started to happen at four in the morning when the light was just right. And someone unbeknownst to authorities filmed this execution and then released it. And this execution can still be viewed today. But as you've known from my other episodes before this, as long as there has been public executions, there have been crowds there to see them. There may have been three to 5,000 to see a normal person hanging, 50,000 for a famous criminal, and 100,000, which is more that can fill most stadiums for a beheading. The emotion discussed to these events is comparatively rare. More the feelings of excitement or even the feeling of being unmoved or disappointment. The short version of this is that it's very hard to answer why people do anything because human behavior and psychology are extremely complex. However, Larson does discuss some factors, include how executions serve as a group bonding exercise where the social norms are reinforced, the thrill of the spectacle, how governments and leaders intentionally ritualize the process as a demonstration of political control, and how their executed people were dehumanized and made into icons of their alleged crimes. And as we discussed last week and the week before, often the execution involved has many steps to violate the corpse long after the death has occurred and people still stay to watch that. Larson also then makes the argument that it is dangerous to try and imagine people in history who viewed the executions with our modern morality and sensibilities. As people were more routinely exposed to pain and held very different attitudes towards human suffering than we do today. Not that we have stopped fasc being fascinated by death and execution or stopped watching it, but that we 
may not do it for the same reasons as what our ancestors may have done. One point that really struck home for me while reading her book and then listening to her TED talk as well was how people in France actually complained about the introduction of the guillotine because it was too quick and lacked the drama and mess of the previous executions. I did touch on this in episode two. In fact, Larson argues that the move towards private humane execution was at least partially in response to changes in morality and intellectuals disgusted by the unseemly riotous behavior of the crowds. As more often, an execution was more like a carnival day than a day for death. She also goes on to the subject of suicide baiting, which is a phenomenon in itself but still had the same underlying psychology behind it. People in a crowd watching someone who is attempting to complete suicide will often scream, get on with it, come on, jump. This is actually a famous phenomenon and it has been researched and shown in a paper that 10 in every 21 suicide attempts, there was instances of suicide baiting and jeering from a crowd. That's nearly 50%. People take photos and videos on their phones and then post them online. Can you see the similarities? Can you personally think of an instance where you've actually seen a fight, an injury or death of someone that was filled by mobile phone that posted on social media? I can, for definite. Media outlets pick up on these videos and then use them in their prime time news bulletins. There's so many times when you switch on the news at six o'clock and you see it's a video of someone filming on the mobile phone or on a dash cam. It's always now that we can see all these things, everything is described, everything is seen. The internet has created a new type of crowd from those of history because it sets a barrier between them and also a sense of detachment. The incident being filmed, people believe, has nothing to do with them and has happened long before that they have actually watched the video. But it also offers the intimacy to be present like you are there in person but still in the comfort of your own home or office or on your commute. And possibly because no one need ever know that you ever click to watch. There is that anonymity to it. Now, events because of cameras and the internet are stretched out. They can be viewed whenever a person wishes to watch not just at the specific time that they are held. This therefore gives the killer or executioner power. This is what these modern internet beheadings wanted to cause, attraction of power for extremists. Unfortunately, history has shown us that we won't stop watching executions. And most soberingly, Larson actually ends her TED talk with, and the killers 
know that too. I don't know whether I wholeheartedly agree with Larson that the killers do the beheadings or execution because they know people will watch them. But I do believe that they do complete these for a power over governments or world, world leaders. They are essentially the bullies of the playground. And if we show them fear, then they increase in power. Is this something that you agree with as a listener? It is a subjective view, but I think she does some make some really valid points that we do have a fascination with execution. But now we do things secretly, where in the past it was definitely a public affair. Next, I came across a brilliant article in the Atlantic paper written by Leah Sotow where she interviewed Scott Michaels about his website called findadeath.com. Of course, please proceed with caution on this website. Michaels was a guy who was interested in autopsy reports and the documents of the last days of some of Hollywood's biggest stars. He originally purchased his domain in 1997 and did not realize how much of a huge fan base that his website would attract. People were hungry for the details of celebrity deaths beyond what mainstream news media could or would provide. Bloody crime scene photos, open casket shots, and glimpses from the coroner's table. In 1999, he actually addressed his fans in a post saying, hi, death hags, and then the name has stuck and he has later copyrighted it. So they were the death hags, and they were not ashamed. This could, I don't know, echo further into the future now, where when you listen to many podcasts, a lot of them have names for their listeners. I I know my favourite murder is Murderinos. For Morbid Podcast is Weirdos. So I know you have... What's the other one? And that's why we drink boozers and shakers. So this is something that actually really predated. However, today, Michael's death hags are more numerous than they have ever been. There are more than 10,000 registered members of findadeath.com forums, which boasts over 1.4 million posts and another couple of thousand fans on Facebook. Now on findadeath.com, he sells memorabilia from famous death locations, bricks from Sharon Tate's fireplace for 50 bucks, a sliver of Rock Hudson's deathbed for $29. And his company, Dearly Departed Tours, has shuttled more than a couple of hundred thousand tourists on his tragical history tours of Hollywood, driving them past the sidewalk where River Phoenix overdosed and the hotel where Janis Joplin died. Frankly though, unflinching discussions of death are more mainstream, prevalent and hip than ever before. Mortician Caitlin Doherty's Smoke Gets In Your Eyes and Other Lessons from the Crematory 
was the New York Times bestseller in 2014. And her Ask a Mortician YouTube series addressing everything from necrophilia to the worst ways to die has millions of views. Also, please view this with caution. It is quite graphic. A sixth generation undertaker, Caleb Wilde, has found a certain amount of celebrity for his irreverent views on death and penning articles like how to take a funeral selfie without being a horrible person. But even the owner of findadeath.com, Michaels, says that there are things online that he wishes that he had never seen. So it appears we all have our limits. In the modern age, finding violence and death online is nothing novel, as I discussed earlier with Larson's TED Talk. In an interview on the Reply All podcast with New York Times journalist Rumanki Kalamanshi, who covers terrorism, she says there is a new ISIS beheading video every couple of days. They are so frequent, she told the host. She even goes on to say that she'll cover her eyes while watching them, just as a way to let less of it come into her. Now, with the click of your finger, you can find that stuff more and more, Michael said. If I had a kid, I'd never let them around a computer. But he draws a blurry moral line. I don't want to see someone getting their head chopped off, Michael says, but I would look at a, look at a picture of the head. Most people are a little hungry for blood. This is a quote by Gail Saltz, an associate professor of psychiatry at the New York Presbyterian Hospital. People want to go and see car races, not just because they love racing of cars, but because the car might hit a wall and blow up, she says. There is a fascination with seeing disasters and horrific things. A part of every human's nature is to be a little sadomasochistic, she says. Society, though, keeps those impulses at bay, controlling urges to do something terrible. Seeing a death can also give people a rush as long as it is from a safe distance. In flipping through images of, say, Princess Diana's fatal car accident, some people get a thrill of feeling close to the danger without actually being in danger. You're safe in the seat behind your computer. But people are also drawn to looking at tragedy in order to confront human's greatest fear. We are probably more afraid of death than anything else, Salt says. The fascination with viewing someone who is dead is driven by that sort of supreme fear of ours which makes us want to know more and to understand the experience and feel like we have some kind of window into it. It could be a way of trying to feel prepared for something that we can never truly be ready for. Scott Bond, a professor of criminology and sociology at Drew University, agrees. 
People love disasters of all sorts. A dead celebrity photo for some is reassurance. The average person, their lives are rather mundane and not that happy. These things divert our attention and reminders. After all, as mundane and as shitty as my life might be, it's not that bad. Bond actually wrote a book about America's obsession with serial killers. He said that reading about the heinous crimes committed by John Wayne Gacy or Jeffrey Dahmer or looking at pictures from murder scenes are ways of getting a cheap thrill like watching a scary movie. It's a form of escapism, Bond says. There is an inherent need to get close to the edge of the abyss and look in without falling in. But that's nothing really new. In 1934, hordes swarmed the just-ambushed car of gangsters Clive Barrow and Bonnie Parker, snipping off locks of hair and flipping open pocket knives to slice ears and fingers off the notorious criminals. Compared to that behaviour, looking at pictures online seems almost benign. Now, let me mention a cult classic film, Faces of Death a 1978 shockumentary that portrays death in dozens of forms. Suicide, botched surgeries, gator attacks, executions, car accidents, and flesh-eating cults. Many of these scenes were faked, including uh, Monkey Shot, which is when people were sitting around a dining table and a waiter brings out a monkey, and the diners are eating the brains of a live monkey. But however, these brains were dyed cauliflower. But more than a few of the scenes in this film were real too. Writer and director John Swartz was on the verge of becoming a cult cinema hero. He was approached by a Japanese production company to produce a documentary about death. They wanted us to capture the horror of death and the more macabre the better, he writes in his memoir. The film was a hit at the box office, grossing $35 million and spawning a string of sequels and imitators. Schwartz explains that the film was meant to break taboos surrounding death. There are some people that say, you're a sick fuck and screw you, you know, he said. But many of the reviews said it was a remarkable exploration into our deepest, darkest secrets. Today, Schwartz thinks he had some small hand in creating the culture that now seeks out violent imagery online instead of at the movie theater. I have found that people can't get enough of this stuff. Schwartz was however onto something. He was bringing death, no matter how gory or gruesome, out into the daylight. This is also something that Eric Wilson, an English professor at Wake Forest University, discusses in his book, Everyone Loves a Trainwreck. Up until the 1900s, people died at home. Adults and children alike were intimate with death. It sounds, it smells, the agony of it, and its peace, Wilson writes. 
Since the 1950s, though, the healthcare industry has increasingly taken charge of death as well as birth. Now, enticed by well-trained doctors, sophisticated medical technologies, and a spotless room, almost everyone, understandably, goes to hospital to die. Doctors handle the gore, and morticians prettify the bodies. Wilson argues that death is not something that we regularly encounter anymore, adding a layer of mystery and intrigue. In his book, Wilson quotes French historian Philippe Perrys, when death arrives, it is regarding as an accident, a sign of hopelessness and clumsiness that must be put out of mind. What if my interest is that I want to see the world as it is? I want to be honest about suffering, Wilson says. There is something noble about that. Morbid curiosity can tap into something quite meaningful is us. But feeling guilty about this is something that Wilson says psychoanalyst Carl Jung has a theory for. The part of people that feels like they shouldn't be looking at the macabre is called your shadow self. And Wilson states that this is the part of your being that's a reservoir of everything you loathe and fear. Most of us go through life repressing our shadow self. Some would say that our interest in horror films is our shadow side expressing itself. Scott Michaels from findadeath.com has seen more dead celebrities than most. He hosts his tours from the driver's seat of a hearse. He has held parties in his coroner's offices and his arms are tattooed with all manners of monsters, serial killers and ghosts. Yet, after all these years among the dead, he still doesn't have an answer to what happens when you die. All he knows is that it's coming. And instead of letting death stalk him, he chases after it. He hopes for a death less terrible, less terrifying and more merciful than the ones he spent his life pursuing. Across the thick of his right arm reads a prayer. From the goblins and the ghosties and the long-leggedy beasties, may the good Lord protect me. I can't figure out if death is the thing I am least afraid of or most afraid of, he said. And perhaps that is the biggest thing that I can draw on from humans watching death and being fascinated by it. Maybe we wish to have that question answered and hope that it is a good response. Before I move on to my sources for this week, I just wanted to give listeners a good fictional book which covers this subject. Um, One author that I've particularly found to be brilliant for all sorts of books like this is Chris Carter. Um, 
Chris Carter is actually um, a criminal psychologist. He is actually the one who wrote all the X-Files series as well. So just a little bit of background. But um, he actually writes some crime books. And there's one particular which is called One by One. And this is about a specific serial killer who actually kills people and has people choose different things on the internet to see which death that this person should go to. So it's a really great book. Um, It's part of a series of books. You don't necessarily have to read them in order. I certainly didn't. I read possibly one of the books in it called An Evil Mind first. And I wish I would have read the others first, but we all make those mistakes, but this book is absolutely brilliant and it's one that I can actually recommend, um, which goes along with this subject. So my sources this week were Severed, A History of Heads Lost and Heads Found by Frances Larson and her TED Talk found on YouTube. Um, What Decapitations Tells Us About Human Nature from NPR News. The psychology behind morbid reality and interpretive phenomenological analysis of fascination with blood, gore, injury, and death on the internet by Rebecca Fox, 2013. Personality and curiosity about morbid and sexual events by Zuckerman and Little. When death is a fascination in the Atlantic by Leah Sottle. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Macabre for Mortals. If you like this podcast, please subscribe for more content and please join our Facebook group, Macabre for Mortals Podcast. Or if you have any stories or any background in psychological things or any killers that you'd like me to cover, then please email them to macabreformortals at gmail.com. Next time I will be covering um, another true crime story that's out of Australia. This is um, one that has actually only just recently, end of last year, beginning of this year, been solved. And it is, I think it's 20 years old all over. And it is the horrific murder of Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon and Sarah Spears. I hope you all have a fantastic week and I will see you on the next podcast. Bye.